It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Welcome to the Larry Kudlow Show. It's a great pleasure to be with you, as always. As always. So we got a bunch of things to talk about right at the top, and I guess um, I guess I want to try to tackle, at least in some sense, this baby formula scandal, which is a very serious thing. It's a health issue, of course. It's also an economic issue, and um, I don't know that I understand all of this, so I'll so I'll say that at the beginning. But I think the root cause of this is the government uh, regulations and the Federal uh, Drug Administration, the FDA. I mean, as I understand it, and again, I don't know all there is to know about this, but um, the FDA dithered for, I don't know, four or five months on this whole story. They they knew that there was a problem back in October. Uh, there were issues about a bacteria virus in the Abbott uh, factory in Michigan. Um, nobody really came forward, but there was a whistleblower, and the whistleblower alerted, uh, actually, the whistleblower alerted the public to this, but they alerted the FDA to this. This was back in October. So we're like, so that's really, you know, you could say almost eight months. We're in the middle of May. And nobody took any action for several months. That's the strange part of this. The FDA did not act on it. They knew about it, but nothing happened. So time passes there's still baby formulas on the shelves, but the supply is already starting to dwindle. Eventually, uh, I guess sometime in January or February of this year, the FDA started to look into it. And they're still looking into it with all their you know, allegedly scientific analysis. And... Um, Baby formula started to, you know, disappear from the shelves. Uh, mothers and parents going crazy. Kids not getting, little babies not getting what they need. I mean, that's really a huge part of this story. They've got a, you know, the health aspect of this is you know, almost an underrated uh, issue. I'm just looking through my through my notes and some news clips. We covered this last night on the Fox Business Show, and. I think that I think are on the right track. I think are on the right track. But so time passes, right? Baby formulas are disappearing, and the FDA uh, still hasn't come up with any clear decisions whether to keep it off the shelves or whether even Abbott. Now Abbott, the role of Abbott, the company, the manufacturer, you know, they say that yes, there was uh, some bacteria problems, but they were not related to the baby formula. It was in a different part of the plant's operations. And they are apparently you know, scrubbing this uh, to see uh, about, um, about the cause. 
So this is all, of course, Abbott Nutrition's uh, Sturgis, Michigan facility, but it's you know Abbott Abbott Nutrition. And really, the plant has um, been idle. It was a voluntary recall, but again, that doesn't help the babies uh, who need this to be healthy. Nobody really knows who put in place this recall. Nobody. The FDA never to this day has ruled on the recall. Now, I don't know. I mean, this is one of these very frustrating things because who is going to put this uh, baby formula back into into play? I mean, when are they going to start producing? The plant is still idle. This is the middle of May, and the shelves are bear. Now, Abbott continues to deny these infections were an issue. They scrub the plant. Uh, There is bacteria, as I said, but it had nothing to do with the baby formulas. The FDA inspectors have gone in. I mean, this Cronobacter, which is um, the root of all this evil, Cronobacter is at least according to James Freeman and his uh, story in the Wall Street Journal today or yesterday, uh, it's really fairly common, uh, not that big a deal. Uh, The Center for Disease Control and Prevention is, of course, looking at this as part of the FDA scrub, but they haven't come up with uh, anything. Um, They only had a couple of um, uh, containers that they actually looked at. So I don't know. I mean, the sad part of this is I don't know when the government, I mean, I can tell you from my experience, I'll give you an example. Um, in 2020, uh, I served on the um, coronavirus uh, health, uh, it was a special committee we had, it was run by Vice President Mike Pence. And, you know, it was when the pandemic hit, and, of course, the federal drug, the FDA was a very important part of this. And we were looking for solutions, the CDC and the FDA. Uh, they move very, very slowly, folks. I mean, very, very slowly. This is a case where government behemoth is a big problem. And um, Trump was able to, President Trump and Vice President Pence, you know, were able to... Uh, crack the whip and get these agencies to move uh, at lightning speed. In fact, we eventually called this Operation Warp Speed to come up with a vaccination. And it also included, you know, getting hold of all the various equipment uh, that would help with remedying uh, the terrible spread of the um, of the coronavirus. Now, this same group, CDC and FDA, is operating on this baby formula problem with respect to Abbott, and they will move at a snail's pace, a snail's pace. And that, I think, is going to be the heartbreak for this story because I don't see a solution. Um, the Wall Street Journal editorializes, and they say that we could be importing uh, similar, even better baby formulas uh, from places like uh, Ireland and Mexico, I believe Chile, I believe the Netherlands. Uh, but the Wall Street Journal blames tariffs uh, on slowing down. But I, I really don't think I don't think tariffs are are the issue here. I do think, however, 
the FDA has such stringent regulations on the kinds of baby formulas that could come into the United States. So there's an, another issue there. What they ought to do is waive those regs and allow the importation. But imports are not going to—they're not going to solve the problem. It would take too long. I mean, everything's going to take too long. And again, that's part of the tragedy. So I, you know, I can't report this morning anything hopeful about this. You know, the government is moving at a glacier's pace. That's always the problem with these regulators. And I don't think the Biden administration, I mean, President Biden does not get involved in a hands-on way the way Trump did. I mean, Trump would call these people into the Oval, I was in these meetings, and crack the whip and say, get moving. This was with respect to the coronavirus, getting all the equipment as well as the movement to vaccinations. And we and the Trump administration was working very, very closely uh, with the pharmaceutical companies and the biotech companies so that this was a public-private partnership. Uh, Trump, of course, from the private sector, uh, many of his senior staff, including myself, yours truly, we were... F- we understood the benefits of the private sector, the ingenuity and the innovation of the private sector. The Bidens don't respect the private sector. So what I'm reading now is that they're blaming Abbott and a couple of other smaller baby formula producers, manufacturers, and they're accusing them of price gouging. Okay? (laughs) Price gouging. There's four main manufacturers of which Abbott is the biggest. This is like the oil and energy sector. Blame the companies. No, you should be working with the companies to produce safe quantities of of this baby formula. Don't beat them up. Work with them. And when I read that stuff, and I I know all of the anti-business predilections of the Biden administration, I say to myself, my goodness, we're going to get tangled up in a war with the manufacturers and uh, the red tape, uh, and it's not going to get solved. I mean, I think somebody's just got to say that the Abbott factory is okay. I mean, it's been closed for all the months. FDA's got to come in. CDC's got to come in. Uh, The health uh, uh, secretary and the health department's got to come in, HHS, and say it's okay. They've looked at it. We don't have to go through a million meetings and boards and scientists weighing in. I mean, there's a desperate need, an urgent need right now to solve this problem and get these formulas back on the shelves and back into the hands of the parents who will feed their little babies and, um, you know, make them well. And I, I don't see that happening, and I don't expect it to happen. And it's a, sa- a terrible, sad tale. So the red tape, the FDA, the red tape of the Center for Disease Control, the anti-business biases of the White House, the failure of Joe Biden to get in there and kick some butt, all this thing makes me ultra-concerned, even sad, that this problem may not get solved for a while. I mean, that's the long and short of it. And um, it's a scandal. It's a terrible scandal. They waited too long. Now they're all tangled up in regulations. And now 
You know, the Bidens are doing the blame game. I love it. The blame game. They just always blame somebody but themselves. And that is the, that's not problem solving, folks. I'm sorry. That's just political blaming and posturing. And uh, it's really intellectually corrupt process. So I wish I had better news. I mean, I wish I was more confident that this darn problem is going to be solved so that America can take care of its children. What is it about this White House, you know? Talking about children. I mean, you know, now I th- just think about Roe v. Wade and 63 million abortions. And I say to myself, save America, save America's children. Save America's children. You know, let states decide. Let's have abortion restrictions, significant restrictions. Let's help get these baby formulas back on the shelves. Let's respect our, you know, the role of parents and families. You know, this transformational, progressive, woke nonsense that comes out of the White House, I'm not sure they even care about families. All the gender and sex talk and and debates or keeping parents out of... Uh, out of the classroom, out of the boards of of, uh, education. You know, we learned that the attorney general had, in fact, been setting up numerous FBI investigations with parents who went to board of education meetings, taking on the teachers' unions over woke teachings in the classroom about race, gender, and sex for five-year-olds. And this administration never seems to come down on the side of the parents and the families. They come down on the side of the government and the bureaucracy and these far-left woke ideas. Now, I don't see any wokeness yet in this baby formula business. I just see a lack of urgency and understanding how important this is to America's children. We want to save America's children. And whether you're talking about Roe v. Wade or abortion regulations, or whether you're talking about cutting red tape in the White House, or whether you're talking about a president who should be hands-on in solving problems but never seems to be. Somehow I see it in my head all of a piece of a problem. I don't want a woke transformation of America. I don't want, he wasn't elected. Even Elon Musk said that this week. Musk said Biden was not elected to transform America. And he's exactly right. Anyway, we'll have much, much more on this as the show goes on. We'll talk about ultra MAGA and Biden's Inflation denial, the inflation numbers were terrible. Let me take a quick break and come back on all of that stuff. But, I mean, really, save America. Save America's children. Save America's babies. Do whatever is necessary to cut through the red tape and get these baby formulas back on the shelves so the children will benefit. 
and the parents and the families can act like parents and families without having a government on their wrong side. You follow? Let me stop there. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back after this. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. By the way, you can get us on the Internet. You can live stream us on the net. LarryKudlowShow.com. That runs throughout the country, overseas, and uh, throughout the solar system, I'm told, although I haven't been up in the solar system in a while. But again, LarryKudlowShow.com. You know, we had some very bad inflation reports this week. There is no let-up in the inflation problem. The uh, CPI, Consumer Price Index, up 8.3%. The Wholesale Price Index, Producer Prices, up 11%. And the Import Price Index, uh, up, I guess, 12.5%. Very bad numbers. Obviously, we have a very shaky stock market. Um, market interest rates are rising. But you would think, I mean, this is just, maybe this is a sidebar, but you would think if inflation is raging and we're in this crisis, and part of this is energy shortages, we're not pumping enough oil, we're not producing enough gas, we're not building new pipelines to get the energy to where it needs to go in the U.S. and for that matter into Europe and overseas, You would think the shortages and the high prices of gasoline, which did hit a record this week, that the Bidens would um, uh, take some actions to deal with this. And they did take some actions. It's fabulous. They they denied uh, oil and gas leases, three of them, three big ones, high-profile ones, one of them in Alaska. I had uh, Governor Dunleavy on and two of them in the Gulf of Mexico, which is really, both those places, cheap oil. The break-evens for profits only $30 a barrel. And the reason that uh, the leases were taken out is they said there wasn't enough industry interest. But the reason there may not have been industry interest is they know full well that Biden's regulations will stop permits. So what good is a lease if you can't get a permit to drill and pipeline? It's an incredible story. Absolutely incredible story. They stopped these uh, energy leases. So we're going to take a quick break. On the other side, we've got the great Phil Graham, former Senator Phil Graham, and we're going to talk about the inflation problem and the energy issues and what the Fed is not doing and why Bidens are blaming MAGA, ultra MAGA, instead of good policies to curb inflation. I'm Kudlow. We'll be back in a short time. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. It's The Larry Kudlow Show. More on the inflation story and the interest rate story and the economic story from our next guest, former Senator Phil Graham, for many years, Senator from Texas. I don't know, one of the smartest guys I've ever met, a mentor of mine helping me while I was in the White House. He's now an American Enterprise Institute visiting scholar. Uh, Phil Graham, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Thank you, Larry. Let me begin uh, some very nasty inflation readings this week. Consumer prices rising 8.3%. Producer wholesale prices rising 11%. Import prices rising 12.5%, even with a reasonably strong dollar. Import prices are rising. Uh, 
President Biden still in denial, blaming Vladimir Putin, blaming energy companies, blaming Donald Trump, <laughs> blaming everybody in sight. Uh, what do you make of it, Senator Graham? What are you thinking about? Well, first of all, I think it's clear that um, the inflation rate uh, is it, it may decline in the future. Um, everything will depend on what we do in the future. But as of right now, the inflation rate is high, and there's every evidence that it is going to stay high. In fact, the decline from 8.5% to 8.3% for the 12-year inflation rate was almost all due to a decline in gas prices and since not only come back, but they're now at the highest level uh, that we've seen in the modern era. So uh, I think we have a problem. I think it begins with spending. You can't spend uh, 50% more in government uh, and have the Federal Reserve Bank buy the debt that is created in that process without prices going up. Uh, It was unrealistic to assume that anything else could possibly happen. And uh, until the spending stops, uh, we're going to continue to have inflationary pressures building in addition to the ones we already have. So I don't see, from the spending side, Senator, I don't see... Any actions by Congress? I mean, Biden, for example, <clears throat> wants more spending. When when he gave his uh, speech uh, last Monday, <clears throat> excuse me, last Monday or Tuesday, he outlined about a half a dozen spending initiatives. You know, social spending programs mainly. Sort of a he's still pushing his bill back better. And the other one, Phil, that really troubles me is this crazy bill, this China compete bill that's now in conference, Uh, 18 Republicans voted for it in the Senate, $350 billion bill. And so, you know, I see more spending, more borrowing, and yeah, money is still uh, easy. But the spending side, why aren't aren't Republicans standing up and and screaming about that? Well, it's clear that there's, at this point, there's virtually no hope of a reversal and actually beginning to try to reduce spending. Uh, But the incredible thing is that in the midst of this building inflation, Congress and the president seem determined to increase spending. Uh, And I think the Chinese compete bill is a perfect example. Um, The the whole uh, foundation the thought in the bill is that we can compete with China by out China and China mm-hmm. by basically having government get involved in picking winners and losers. Uh, there is already building evidence that we're going to have an oversupply in the future of computer chips. And so what is government doing as new plants are being built all over the world, trying to subsidize it with money we don't have and shouldn't be spending? So, no, it's a terrible bill, and I 
I've, I've written articles in opposition to it, um, but um, there is a compulsion to spend money, and when you're spending vast amounts of money, uh, the, the, uh, any resistance to spending, it seems to vanish. And the other side is the Federal Reserve is buying uh, about half of the uh, bonds being issued, you know, borrowing to finance spending. And the Fed, you know, Phil, I don't, the Fed is awful slow. I mean, so many economists, including myself, for heaven's sakes, they're behind, they're way behind the curve. Uh, They've got, you know, they're raising the target rate by 50 basis points, Fed funds rate, with an an 8.3% CPI. I mean, let's assume, okay, the broadest inflation indexes, uh, personal consumption uh, index and so forth, Inflation rate may be basic six and a half to seven percent. All right, that's the lowest I can find any place, and the Fed's got a target rate that's le- less than one percent. So there's no positive real interest rates, and their balance sheet—they're still putting cash into the economy. They say they're going to slow that down, but they're still doing it. So I—I I don't really get this. I mean, I don't see how we're going to conquer inflation here. Well, I think they're trying to get a delicate balance to constrain the inflation without tipping the economy into a recession. And I understand that, and so I certainly appreciate it. But we are at the point now where inflation is the, the most serious threat the economy faces. It's something that's hurting every working family in the country. And uh, the need to be decisive in dealing with it. And, you know, the Fed was very outspoken during the pandemic in urging Congress to spend money to stimulate the economy. And it was unprecedented. No Fed had ever done that before. And I don't understand, given that they were outspoken saying it would help the economy if you spent more, uh, then why aren't they saying it would help the economy if you spent less now? Mm, mm, mm. Uh, And I also believe that to constrain the economy, you've got to stop spending money and you've got to have interest rates constrain uh, borrowing. And uh, I think we're moving toward that, but I believe we started to put the brakes on uh, too late. I don't think we're pushing on the pedal hard enough. And we're simply compounding the problem. And the longer we wait to take decisive action, I'm afraid the more difficult the problem is going to be. And real wages are falling. Uh, They've fallen more in this inflation than they fell in the uh, financial crisis. Uh, So we're really affecting uh, working people, supposedly the people, that government is spending all this money to help. Uh, so when people are going to wake up and decide that we're hurting the very people who claim to be helping, um, uh, I don't know when it's going to happen, but it, 
at some point here, the problem is going to get so serious uh, that uh, something will have to be done. And, of course, we know in 1980 uh, that uh, with the inflation rate at 13.5% and interest rates at 21.5%, the American people decided enough was enough, and they sent for Ronald Reagan. Well, the cavalry's coming. (laughs) I wish we could use a man like Ronald Reagan again. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, we we should. We were you and I were both young men when that revolution took place. We we, we were part of it. Um, don't know if I see Reagan on the horizon, but 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 we'll see. Phil Graham, what what are the odds that we can have a soft a soft landing? What do you think about that? Well, look, I think it's a, a wish uh, uh, that we uh, we all share. Um, I think it's increasingly improbable. Um, and sort of my view is like, if you got a toothache, you know it's going to hurt when you go to the dentist, but you want to get it over with. Mm. And uh, I, I think people are ready for decisive action. Uh, and a lot of correcting policy is admitting you made a mistake. Uh, it's awfully hard uh, to change policy if people don't acknowledge the policy that created the problem uh, uh, was the wrong policy. And what we're doing now is this incredible example of where uh, the president says we need more oil and gas production, but I'm going to kill the oil and gas industry. Uh we're going to provide more land for leasing, but I'm going to take offshore leasing rights away. Um, and uh, all the time we can uh, claiming that the very thing that caused the problem, runaway spending, is the solution to the problem. Hmm. Now, I don't know even if they believe that. Certainly the American people don't believe it. But I would have to say it's very discouraging that Congress keeps spending money. Mm. Uh, and it's, uh, it's remarkable to me. I, I can't imagine uh, under these circumstances that there would not be a growing voice in Washington saying enough is enough. Let's stop mm. the spending. Senator, let me let me take a quick break. Uh, I want to come back and pursue this because President Biden's speech uh, this past week was in complete denial about this. And in fact, he keeps arguing that more spending programs uh, are going to lower costs for families and individuals uh, when in fact it's just the opposite. He will not he won't own the problem. So we're never going to solve it. I got to take a quick break. Senator Phil Graham, folks, I'm Larry Cutlow. We'll be right back after this brief message. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. With former Texas Senator Phil Graham. He's now an AEI visiting scholar. Uh, Phil, I want to just pick up on this. You know, Biden's speech last week, he basically blamed Vladimir Putin. And then he you know, went on to make these political attacks. He's coming up with this phrase, ultra-MAGA. 
So they're trying to bring in Donald Trump. So blame Donald Trump for the inflation. There was no inflation during the Trump years. Trump left the inflation rate about one and a half percent. Biden denied, I mean, he was forceful. He denied that federal spending was the problem. And I just have a little list. Uh, in that speech, he called for more subsidies for child care, elder care, electric vehicles, farmers, home builders, and, of course, green energy. Wouldn't be a good Biden speech unless we had more green energy subsidies. So there he is saying spending's not the problem, and he put up a half a dozen additional spending plans. He's really still pushing for the $5 trillion version of Build Back Better. So I don't. if you don't recognize a problem, how the heck are you going to solve it? If you don't own the problem, how the heck are you going to solve it? Well, I think that's the problem. Um, I think the Democrats, when Biden took office, could not resist throwing away almost $2 trillion, uh, a 50% increase in government spending. And um, having thrown the money away, then they came and and spent it in ways that induced people not to work. Mm -hmm. You know, not everybody in America has an exciting job. Some people work hard and they do things that, uh, are difficult. And if you're willing to pay people the same amount of money for not working, there are a lot of people that are going to not work. Um, if you, uh, if you do that, you're going to have a reduction in the number of people in the labor market. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, and at the same time, of course, the spending is driving up the demand for goods and services, there are fewer people working, so you're producing few, fewer goods and services. And we're not having cheap imports now because they have the same problems. And so all of this is creating a problem that is not going to get better until we change policy. Hmm. Uh, it's sort of like being overweight. You're not going to get rid of being overweight weight by justifying eating more. Mm-hmm. You have to yeah. make a change. Uh, and if we're going to do something, and look, if we don't stop spending and the Fed really does put on brake, brakes, this new borrowing is going to create competition for available capital and interest rates are going to really zoom. Mm. So, um, we're down now to the point where this thing could get significantly worse. Uh, and, you know, the, all the discussions are it's going to get better. Um, and some parts of it, the parts of it that have to do with the so-called supply chain problem, but much of the supply chain problem, Larry, is we're trying to buy more goods than can be produce that creates supply chain problems so it's it's not just the lingering effect of the pandemic anymore uh it's not just the war uh in ukraine it's government in the midst of all these other uh factors that are adding to the problem continues to spend money 
Uh, and as a result, the problem is not getting better and could get worse. And my guess is if spending doesn't stop and the Fed really steps on the brakes, that you're going to see interest rates go up significantly because then government is going to be competing with the private sector for available capital. And that's where big-time recessions come from. So it's a serious uh, problem. No, I I was just going to say, Senator Graham, I was just going to say on the supply chain stuff, if you're increasing demand at a rapid rate because of all this government spending and the Fed's easy money, um, nominal GDP, which is a pretty good proxy for aggregate demand, you know, nominal GDP is rising in double digits, 10 or 12%. So pandemic or no pandemic, you can't produce enough goods to cover that. I mean, I think that's one of the problems in the supply chain argument. There's no miracle on the supply side. I mean, except for all the regulations that are cutting back on supply. But you know, pandemic stuff notwithstanding, how the hell are you going to meet enough, create enough goods? How can you produce enough goods to meet a twelve percent increase in nominal GDP? I mean, we've never well, done you're that. You're always, you're always going to have a supply chain problem when you're demanding more than society can produce. Right. Right. And I mean, the supply chain has become an excuse. Yes. And again, how many people in the real world where you live do you know that fix problems when they the best they can do in describing the problem is to make excuses? Uh, it just doesn't happen. Uh, and government. But it's not that different than the real world. If you can't say, here is the problem, we caused it, now we've got to undo the things we've done, you end up in the situation we're in now where Biden's solution to every problem is more spending. Right. And why is it the solution? Because it's the predetermined answer. They are in power, they are concerned they're going to lose power, and they want to use the opportunity they have now to make government bigger, and they're willing to do it even if it produces many of these other problems. And uh, uh, the sad thing, of course, is the problems will be there when they're gone. And look, when Republicans take control of Congress, uh, in six months, they're going to have some heavy lifting. Mm. Uh, it's sort mm. of, uh, you know, uh, it's going to be a hard job. Um, We're going to have to have some leadership on the idea you make of spending less. <laughs> I mean, that's really spending less. I just, my concern, I mean, I know the cavalry's coming, but I just want to make sure that the cavalry will have the right roadmap when they get there. Yeah. And I'm well, we concerned about that. Spending before we can spend less. Yeah. Um, stopping the spending train would be a major step in the right direction. Mm. Yes, sir. Uh, and as you know, uh, a, a, a motion to spend money in Washington never dies from lack of a second. <laughs> That's um, exactly right. 
<laughs> Senator Phil Graham, it's always a pleasure. Uh, my best you regards to Wendy Graham, and thanks very well, much listen, for this morning. You tell your wife we sent our love. <laughs> thank and, you. Uh, I'll tell Judy. She's around. All right. Thank you, sir. Appreciate Bye-bye. it. All right, folks, that's great. Phil Graham is truly a great American, okay? He's just a great American. I'm Larry Kudlow. On the other side of the break, we're going to have another great American, former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich, who is generating the American Majority Project Stop This Big Government Socialism. Boy, is that important right now. I'm Larry Kudlow, and we will be back. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. Larry Kudlow. By the way, join us during the week on Fox Business. The name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day. And if you can't see it at 4 to 5 p.m., you can call up your favorite nine-year-old who will teach you how to DVR it. You'll never miss a thing. So we are blessed this morning. We have the former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, great friend, his best-selling author. His, uh, he's also a Fox News contributor. His latest book is Beyond Biden, Rebuilding the America We Love. And um, most importantly, his newest project, it's called the American Majority Project, essentially you know, how to move us back, I think, towards common sense and get away from this crazy progressive, woke agenda of the Bidens. First of all, Newt, thank you for for your time this morning. We appreciate it very much. Uh, listen, I'm delighted, and uh, it's always great watching your show and then uh, and hearing from you. And uh, The last couple of weeks with economic news has been wild enough that you've been dramatically in demand. <laughs> yes, things are, are okay. I want to start um, in, the, uh, in the American Majority Project, one of your polling results, 71% like, favor, legal immigration, but 73% oppose illegal immigration. Now, you're tweeting this week, I'm going to read it, it is insane that once again the Biden administration has prioritized the needs of illegal immigrants over American citizens, talking about sending these um baby formula packages to detention centers for illegal immigrants while, you know, families and their babies can't get hold of the baby formula because of the whole Abbott and FDA problem. This is part of the insanity of the Biden's um, agenda. Yeah, you know, it's really astonishing. I was thinking about doing the show with you. Yeah, and I I wanted to make a point about and understand when people tell you they have, say, a liberal bias, okay? Well, you can't understand some of the specific things they're doing that both politically and in common sense just are crazy. I mean, this is an example. You now have the American people, uh, I think in 26 states there are shortages of formula uh, if you are an American citizen, but apparently the government is doing everything it can to make sure that as long as you get here illegally, that your government is taking care of you. Uh, but, but the other example that hit me that uh, is just astonishing, and I want to get your reaction to, you've got a rising price of gasoline. Every I think every day this week set a new record for the all-time high for gasoline. You have a shortage of diesel fuel, which is going to translate directly into the cost of trucking, 
which translates into the cost of every single consumer good, including groceries. And in that setting, you have the Biden administration canceling leases for prospecting for oil and gas. Now, I mean, it's one thing to say they're ideologically left wing. This is just stupid. Hmm. And you have to wonder, I mean, particularly while the president, you know, Biden gives these pious talks about how he's really concerned about inflation. He really understands your pain. I mean, what does he think it's going to do? Well, Lee, sure. Look, it's almost hilarious. You, you, you got this. We we're just talking to former Senator Phil Graham about this. So you've got big inflation numbers this week. You're quite right. 8.3% CPI, 11% PPI, 12.5% importing prices. Energy is at the heart of this. Not the only thing by far, but it's the heart of this. He canceled a big lease in Alaska and two leases in the Gulf of Mexico. You know, Newt, if you drill in the Gulf of Mexico, your break-even for profits is only $30 a barrel. So that would be cheap oil, okay? Not $110 a barrel, which is the current price, but $30 a barrel break-even. And they stopped the leases. And, of course, the oil people know that even if they buy a lease, right, they're not going to get a permit because of these very stringent environmental regulations coming out of the White House. There's not going to be any permitting. So you're making the problem worse. Now, I guess this would qualify as your sort of common sense changes that are necessary, and that's what the American Majority uh, Project is talking about. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, look, the American Majority Project starts out with a discovery which Ronald Reagan and and Margaret Thatcher both personified uh, and which we followed in the contract with America, and that is most Americans are relatively smart. Uh, most Americans know that uh, they want to see prices go endlessly. They can't afford it personally. And most Americans know that if you produce more gas and oil, the price will come down. I mean, mm. you have to be a fairly crazed left winger to believe that there's no relationship between supply and price. So the American Majority Project essentially aiming at defeating big government socialism. And I was reading yeah, some and, of it. And, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead, say, please. And, and, and it's designed, and I want to emphasize this. This is not a Republican majority project. This is an American majority project because just as Reagan had a, an entire generation of Reagan Democrats, <clears throat> I believe it's possible to put together a genuine bipartisan majority that understands that that big government socialism fails and that woke policies are just plain wrong. And you you go back, you talk about Margaret Thatcher, who argued that you have to win the argument first. Win the argument first. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's crucial. Uh, Well, the, the thing that's astonishing about Thatcher is that she took on socialism as a moral issue. Uh, she had grown up uh, in, the, in World War II. Uh, she was a deep fan of Churchill. She saw herself, I think, as a Churchillian figure, uh, and she thought she was in a fight for the very survival of Great Britain. Uh, and so she, she went straight at socialism as an immoral act of theft in which a group of politicians claim they have the right to take your money while they decide how to spend what you have earned. Uh, and she so decisively won that fight that no openly left-wing politician has been elected prime minister for 40 years. Uh, she, al- she always regarded 
uh, Tony Blair converting the Labor Party with what he called New Labor, uh, which uh, the uh, Paul Johnson said Blair was in fact her adopted son, and she <laughs> she always she always regarded having convinced the Labor Party that her policies were right as the greatest single achievement of her career. Uh, but but she had sim- she simply pounded away at it. Reagan did the same thing internationally uh, and got about halfway as far as she did in terms of the positive half of Reaganism. But uh, he did not take on the left. And, of course, in the Reagan cycle, the, the left wasn't as blatantly crazy as it is now. Uh, it, you know, it, it had sort of subsided. It was very crazy in the period around 1972 when Theodore White said that the, the liberal ideology had become a liberal theology. And you could no longer talk with them rationally because it was an active religious belief. But then it sort of died down, uh, and then it came back with a vengeance, I think partly triggered by Trump and the the reaction of the left uh, to this idea of somebody who actually was, was going to take on their core values. So it seems to me the American Majority Project is aimed at providing the intellectual ammunition to stop this sort of woke transformational progressivism. I mean, I see this experiment in progressivism coming from Biden as right now, Newt, it's utter failure. The American people are rejecting this. I mean, that's why I think the cavalry's coming in six months for the election. But this is an important moment because the failure of this kind of woke progressivism, what you call big government socialism, we have to build on this. We can't just let it fail. There has to be an intellectual grounding for this so that we don't go back to it in the future. That's right. The, the danger for Republicans is twofold. First, that, that they will just run a performance-based campaign in which it will be mm-hmm. obvious that, that, that they're failing to perform, but that doesn't create a base for rejecting the whole the ideas it just says and then let it lets the left say well if only we had better leadership our ideas would have worked uh, which is which is wrong that is the ideas that are wrong and they're just compounded by the incompetence of people like biden but the second problem is the republicans have to understand that they cannot have a, a base intensifying narrowly right-wing approach to this stuff they've got to actually reach out to the American people, not just the Republican base. If if they really want to transform the country and move us into an ability to compete with China and to solve all of our major problems. And so I, I worry as much about a Republican victory, which I think now is very, very likely, almost inevitable, uh, but it being squandered by people who don't understand what's really at stake and don't understand what, what Thatcher and Reagan taught us, which is, you know, you want, to, you want to build a majority view where the majority understands what works and the majority insists on solutions that make their lives better. Newt, Kim, I, I got to take a quick commercial break. Um, I want to keep you here for uh, another side. I want to talk some more about reaching across the aisle. And I also want to talk about limiting spending and balancing the budget which is something that you did with the contract with America in the middle 1990s. I think we need the same movement. So please stick with me, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking to former House Speaker Newt Gingrich about the American Majority Project. This is so important. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. 
Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I am here with former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich. His latest book is Beyond Biden, Rebuilding the America We Love, and most importantly, his latest current initiative, the American Majority Project, to provide an intellectual foundation to take down big government socialism and this crazy woke experiment in transforming progressivism. Anyway, Newt, I want to thank you for sticking around. I want to go to another part of the American uh, Majority Project by 67 to 19 percent, 67 to 19 percent, Americans favor limited spending and a balanced budget as ways to reduce inflation. Now, inflation being the number one problem, inflation is in crisis and the economy is weakening and probably it will not end well. Um, talk about how to get an intellectual foundation for a balanced budget principle, which almost nobody right now, almost nobody besides yourself, I don't know, maybe me and Russ vote, but you know, nobody's talking about the need for balanced budget as a principle and then as an action plan. Well, I mean, first of all, as you know, Larry, we balanced the budget for four straight years. The only time in your mm-hmm. lifetime we had four straight years of balanced budget was the House Republicans after the contract with America. And we did it by combining two very different approaches. One, something that you helped pioneer in the Reagan era, uh, we were very supply-side growth-oriented. So uh, we had the largest capital gains tax cut in history. We had uh, dramatic regulatory changes. We created the condition for people uh, to go out and create jobs and invest. Uh, And that, of course, increased revenues dramatically. And we had passed uh, welfare reform moving people from dependency to work and increasing the income for children. The the largest rise of children out of welfare and out of poverty came because we reformed welfare and turned it into a work program, not a dependency program. So you had a lot of good things going on economic growth revenue side. Second, we were very tough about spending. Uh, We were intelligently tough. Uh, We uh, we doubled, actually, the, the funding for the National Institutes of Health because we thought that uh, breakthroughs in treating uh, diseases would, in the long run, both be morally correct but also financially correct. Uh, but, but we also uh, have long belonged to a school that believed that the Pentagon needs to be reformed, not just fed. Uh, and so we were, we were willing to take on the bureaucracies pretty aggressively. Uh, I think a Republican party which aligns itself to the, that overwhelming American majority that, that believes, first of all, morally, if you're supposed to balance your family budget, if you're a small business, you're supposed to balance your budget, why don't politicians have the same obligation to balance the budget? Uh, and, I, and my experience has been if you don't require a balanced budget, they will always spend more uh, because there's no, there's no natural uh, incentive not to. So I'm, I'm a very big believer that we should have getting back to a balanced budget, both as an anti-inflation uh, step, but also as a step towards long-term economic and, and, uh, and I think, uh, moral health for the government. You know, I think I'm just, I mean, to me, this is just so important. So this kind of, say, a balanced budget project uh, would conquer inflation and would promote long-term growth and productivity. 
and innovation. In other words, it's not just an accounting thing, Newt, you know, which is too often what people relegate it to. This is a powerful economic growth tool. And I think, um, you know, winning the argument, I think that's a good, a good way to sell it, you know, to market it. A balanced budget will get us price stability and rapid economic growth, you know, 3 4% growth a year for the next uh, 30 years. Well, and it will force reform of government. And the American people actually believe about a half, <clears throat> excuse me, about half of all government spending is waste. So mm. you have a pretty, pretty good baseline here to go back out. When, when you learn, for example, that in California alone, they lost $20 billion, not million, $20 billion in unemployment compensation to theft. Mm. Uh, you know the, that we have plenty of waste and fraud <clears throat> that, that could be cut out of the government. There's no incentive right now to do it. When you establish a balanced budget requirement, you have a real incentive to spend your money wisely, not just keep throwing the people's money at whatever politician concept comes up uh, next. Well, um, well, Kevin McCarthy's project, I mean, he's putting together a kind of modernized contract with America. Do um, you think we can get him to include a balanced budget principle in there? I think so. I, I think the... Again, I think if you if you start talking about an American majority, it's going to include getting back to a balanced budget because that's where the American people are. And I also have have felt like we've made. I've been talking with Mitch McConnell's staff, and I think they're beginning to drift towards having some kind of a contract too. So I, I think there's a general belief that both in terms of good government and in terms of good politics, that picking you know. Five or ten things. We had ten in our original contract, uh, which, were, by the way, we were standing on Reagan's shoulders because you may remember he announced a, a contract on the Capitol steps in September 1980, uh, and we then we then picked up the Senate for the first time since 1954 when nobody thought we would do it. But by bringing everybody together, uh, we created the momentum uh, that people like Mattingly won Senate seats. It was a, a remarkable mm-hmm. moment. And Reagan deserved a lot of credit for having the courage to, to, to run as a ticket, not just run as an individual. You know, also with the American Majority Project, I'm really attracted to the idea of reaching out to Democrats and making this bipartisan. Now, here's the thing, question, Newt. Um, you've got a very, you know, left-wing, woke, progressive Democratic Party. At, at least in terms of the leadership. They have the levers of power right now. But are rank-and-file Democrats, in your judgment, you know, rank-and-file Democrats across the country, do they really buy this progressivism, do you think? Do they really buy this woke stuff? Or are they no, looking I, I for, think, an, you know, shopping that, around for an alternative? No, I think 30 to 40% of the Democrats would be available to an American majority. I, I don't know that you get to a majority of Democrats. But there's, there's a little book called The Education of Ronald Reagan by Tom Evans, which is yep. about Reagan's eight years of general lecture. And I recommend it to everybody, and I mention it in the, in the work I've done on the American Majority Project, because Reagan understood the key was not negotiating with Chip O'Neill. The key was appealing to the American people right. and let the American people talk to the Democrats. 
Newt Gingrich, thank you ever so much. Good luck on the American Majority Project. We're all helping you market this thing. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about the Federal Reserve and first principles in the American economy. We welcome Kevin Warsh, former Federal Reserve Governor, Board of Governors. He's now a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, a former banker, and probably most importantly, a friend of Larry. Good morning, Kevin. Thank you. (laughs) Good morning, Larry. Good to be with you. So let me just uh, tackle for a second. You and John Kogan were interviewed in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I haven't read the whole document, but you, uh, you guys are pushing something called first principles. Can you just give us a rundown of first principles? Sure, Larry. I'd be happy to. You know, the the question that uh, amid the malaise uh, in the economy, the troubles uh, in fiscal and monetary policy, it occurred to John and me that we, what we want to do is look over the horizon a little bit. And so when there's various policies that will be discussed as we get closer to the 2024 presidential campaign, the thought was, how should we think about them? What's the right framework? What's the right device? so that we can end up with a set of policies that really lead to a resurgence in economic growth and break out of the malaise and inflation we've got. And uh, we thought there was enough white space, Larry, between the enlightenment of a few hundred years ago and the next 10-point plan that we try to dive deeper. The principles we come up with basically says that the strength of the American economy is based on an old-fashioned system of natural liberty, natural liberty where people conduct their affairs as they with uh, voluntary transactions, and at the core of it are three simple ideas. And these ideas might sound old-fashioned to some of your listeners, but we've really wandered far from them in recent years. The first idea is that individuals are different. You can't judge people by where they were born or the color of their skin. They have each individual preferences, and the key to the U.S. economy is to take advantage of them, make sure that we're making the most of them instead of conflating that with group rights. The second, of course, is institutions, institutions that you and I care a lot about, like the Federal Reserve or the Supreme Court. These institutions are being asked to do much more than they're often tasked with originally doing by the Founding Fathers or by statute. Institutions in the private sector are being asked to take on public policy purposes, get into the business of politics, and it's that blurring of institutions that we think have been quite defeatist towards economic growth. And the last of them is what's the core of the U.S. economy, Larry, which you've been preaching for generations? Ideas, ideas that come from the, from the minds of individuals. And unlike uh, the current politics of envy and economics of envy, and these ideas, good ideas have massive gains. They're not zero sum. It's not like a fixed piece of pie, uh, fixed pie that we fight over the slices ideas that come here are the source of great innovation and will lead the country to a strong 21st century. If we go the opposite of these core ideas, we'll just be doing nothing more than a poor imitation of the Chinese Communist Party, in which case the 21st century is going to be fought on their terms, not ours. Mm, that's a good point, uh, the, Chinese, the Chinese model. We don't want to out-China China. So private property, rule of law, free markets, limited government... That's the primacy of private enterprise. I like that a lot. So, Kevin Warsh, um, let's turn to the Federal Reserve. You were a governor there for many years. 
Uh, you, uh, in this interview in the journal, you talk about how the Fed has turned towards environment and social policies, climate change, woke, and racial equality, and have pulled back from their principal objective, which should be price stability. You know, as you know, Kevin, we had some lousy inflation numbers this week. Don't see really any improvement in all that story. The question is, as a former Fed governor, um, are they moving sufficiently to conquer inflation? Uh, Larry, in a word, no. Um, uh, Between you and me and your listeners, I'd say that the Fed committed the biggest, most significant economic policy error in the U.S. in the last 40 years. Um, They somehow seem to have forgotten that their number one statutory objective, the number one most important thing they can do, all those important causes they care about, like having an economy filled with opportunity, is to ensure price stability. This surge in inflation, which has really been going on for at least a year, this is the most regressive tax that does the most harm to the least well-off among us. So even in their vaunted goals, they're not achieving that. Um, they seem to have pivoted slowly starting in November and December. Chairman Powell gave a press conference uh, earlier this week, but they're moving so tepidly, so modestly. Heck, Larry, uh, it was only five and a half weeks ago. They were still buying mortgages, for goodness sake, using the Fed's mm. balance sheet to do that. And mm. housing has been on a tear that makes the, the housing tear going into the 08 crisis look like nothing. So they've been very slow to pivot, very slow to normalize policy. And I'm afraid the truth of the matter is uh, it's like we learned in foreign policy. The price for stopping a dictator goes up over time. Same thing's true with inflation. This thing was fixable nine months ago at considerably less cost than they are now. And they're acting very, very, very tepidly. When we had a crisis in 2008, we acted aggressively. When this Fed had a crisis in the spring of 2020, they acted aggressively. Financial markets were breaking down. Banks were insolvent. They acted aggressively. Yet here they're taking their own slow time, and I'm afraid they're, they're, they're going to make the, the, the pain even more significant because their response is asymmetric. Uh, you know, I guess the way I'd say it simply in conclusion to this question, Larry, is at this point, because of the policy error they've made, the pain is inevitable but the suffering is optional. And, uh, the slower they go, the longer the suffering is going to be and the more pernicious it's going to be to the U.S. economy. You know, on that point about asymmetry, Kevin Warsh, it's interesting. In 2008, they did act rapidly to increase reserves to pour new money into the economy. They did the same thing in 2020. So I guess what I'm worried about, I guess you are too, right now they should be acting very aggressively to drain reserves, to take money out of the economy, not just to slow, you know, not just to slow down the reserve increases, but to actually drain reserves, Kevin, and that that will entail a Fed funds rate, presumably that would be above the inflation rate. Right now it's so far below the inflation rate. I mean, it, that's that's the issue here, is it not? That's the conundrum. You know, they they were quick to pour money in in the deflationary crises, but they seem like they don't want to take money out in the inflation crisis. You you, you got it. Um, it it's okay for the central bank after 
100 years of its existence, when it gets confronted by an old-fashioned crisis to act aggressively. Heck, that's the job of the central bank. But when things normalize, they can't just let the, let the ammunition stay out there. They've got to rebuild their credibility. And, you know, this, this policy that they adopted really starting, Larry, in August 2020 at uh, the Federal Reserve Conference out in Jackson Hole, that was a regime change in policy where they basically said, we're going to keep loose money for all seasons and all reasons. And, heck, we want a little more inflation well, they won't be the first central bank that asked for a little more inflation and got a lot more. So in some sense, what you're saying and what I'm saying is a regime change got into this mess, and a, a regime change is necessary to get them out of this mess. And I don't hear from them this week or even in the last several months anything like a regime change. I hear uh, fiddling with the old regime, which created this inflation, which is four times what they said. Uh, and so it requires uh, the same kind of radicalism that you do in crises when the crisis is of inflation, just like it was when markets were breaking down and banks were breaking down. You know, Mario Draghi famously said in the European crisis a decade ago, we'll do whatever it takes to get out of it. Where's the whatever it takes mindset now, for goodness sake? This, this surge in inflation is doing a lot of harm to the U.S., the least well-off among us, and setting a terrible example to, for, for the, of the U.S. economy to the rest of the world. And they look to me like they're going slow and tepidly and uncertain. Uh, the truth of the matter, the Fed's not a victim here. The Fed needs to take uh, ownership and leadership instead of blaming everyone else for the problem that they've largely created. Hmm. Yeah, you know, that's a good point. At Jay Powell's press conference... Uh couple weeks ago it had a biden-esque feel to it it's, it's not our fault biden says it's putin's fault and jay powell said yeah the ukraine war and the pandemic but he never really mentioned uh buying and selling bonds or injecting or withdrawing cash from the economy it's not mm -hmm. our fault it's not our mm -hmm. fault kevin worse last one how much uh, in your judgment um how much is the fed handcuffed now by this, you know, climate change policies, racial equality or inequality policies, you know, generally woke policies, rather than the old fashioned Fed mission to keep uh, the dollar sound and the inflation rate low? Well, they're handcuffed, but they handcuffed themselves, Larry. And the good news is they've got the keys to undo the handcuffs. Uh, you know, if they can ensure price stability, a lot of these other problems can be remedied much more quickly. If they, if they fail to achieve price stability, economic growth will be weaker. The country will be more divided. We won't be able to create innovations to deal with climate risks over the next generation. So, so they put themselves in a box, and that's what bothers me about their behavior in the last few months. This box was easily foreseeable. But to your point, inflation's a choice. They're not victims here. They're able to get out of it, but not if they continue to do business in, the, uh, in this period, like they've done business in the last couple of years. They created a dangerous regime, and this central bank needs regime change. And by the way, I think markets are looking for regime change too. Markets do not like this kind of uncertainty and passive 
the buck to someone else. Someone needs to step up, and in the history of economics, uh, inflation can only be fixed by the central bank themselves, and we need them to take this very seriously to fix it. And if they do, a lot of the country's other problems will be remedied by the appropriate actors if they stick to their knitting. I, I really like the regime change theme, Kevin. I really do. I think we've got to sell that. It's very important. Regime change. That's exactly what it is. Sometimes, though, you know, you have to change uh, personnel to get the regime change. And I'm worried about the new crop of Federal Reserve officials. But anyway, we'll talk some more about that. You're going to come on the TV show this week, I hope. So maybe we can talk about regime change. Folks, that was Kevin Warsh, former Federal Reserve governor, visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, important friend of Larry. Thank you, Kevin. Folks, we'll be right back on the other side with Clinton Democratic pollster Mark Penn, who really says Governor Hochul can't win the governorship again. She will not be reelected. That's a poll he just took. I'm Larry Kudlow, and we'll be back in just a few moments with Mark Penn. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. So now we're going to talk to my favorite Democratic pollster, my absolute favorite Democratic pollster. And he's one of the best pollsters for anybody in the country. Mark Penn is chairman and CEO of Stagwell, Inc. He was a pollster for Bill and Hillary Clinton and Ed Koch and on and on. And Mark, first of all, welcome. Thank you for this morning. I'm just going to read the headline of your op-ed piece in the New York Post. Dems beware Hochul's toast in November. So let me see. Hochul's job rating is 36% approve and 57% disapprove. So Mark Penn, is she toast? Well, you know, they write the headlines on your pieces. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but, but let's just say that, that I was stunned that nobody really noticed here. You look at the Siena poll, and her job rating is, is lower than even President Biden's. So New York voters are really unhappy between the economy and crime with what's going on. And uh, and going to re-election, as you know, with a 37% job rating, that's not a winning job rating. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you cite some evidence in this. And I got to tell you, my favorite one is the billion-dollar subsidy for the Buffalo Bills Stadium, which you note is the most expensive deal in NFL history and one that benefits the Florida-based Bills owner. Florida, so the guy lives in Florida, but the Hochul's giving him a billion dollars for this Buffalo Bills stadium. She's from the Buffalo uh, area. And then you say voters oppose this boondoggle by 63 to 24% in the Siena poll. I mean, that's extraordinary. Well, exactly. I mean, it just shows the kind of issues here that are out there as as arrow into a potential general election. I mean, obviously, you know, Cuomo left office in disgrace. Uh, Hochul came in with a with a difficult situation and she had an opportunity here. And so why would she cut deals like this, you know, with an opportunity to, you know, she's not an elected governor. She's going to go up for her first real election if she gets through the uh, the primary and, and it was an enormous budget, and it was a budget with, with, with stuff like this in it. 
when it's a time of inflation, rising prices. Yeah, she led state spending with a whopping $220 billion budget uh, containing program expansions that will threaten future tax hikes. Her handpicked lieutenant governor, uh, this Brian Benjamin, was charged, had corruption problems. She had to drop him. Um, crime is a huge issue. I don't think she's gotten any confidence on that. I mean, Mark, when you look at the race in general, can Lee Zeldin, uh, Republican congressman, uh, can he beat her in, with this? What's your take on that? Well, as I said, look, when you look at ratings generally, when incumbents are 45 to 50, they could probably win. If they're 40 to 45, they probably will lose. Hmm. If they're below 40, they almost definitely will lose. So the only thing you can really count on is somehow the registration for Democrats could pull any Democrat across. And that's that's not true when you don't have federal elections, right, coincident with, with state elections, because state elections are about state issues. Right. So you're saying there's, there's no presidential election. So she's stuck with her own record and people are rejecting her. I was surprised. No, Mark, let me come back to the Zeldin thing. What's your appraisal of Lee Zeldin? Well, it's hard to appraise him because he's not that well known. Do mm. I think he has, he has a very good, you know, look, he has a, a good record. He has a good, you know, political history. He's well positioned. But if I were to run a head-to-head today, Hochul would win such a head-to-head. Why? Because she's well-known and he's not. So he's mm-hmm. what we call a candidate of potential. He could win, mm-hmm. could lose. He, he obviously has a race in which, in which, you know, if she wins the primary he's, he's, and he wins the primary, she's vulnerable. Uh, but he's got to play out his race. He could be subject, to, you know, to attacks. It'll be a tough race. It'll be a well-funded, all-out race. No question mm. about that one. And Mark Penn, what do you um, what do you think about the Tom Swazi challenge? I mean, he's he's running, I guess, as a moderate Democrat, maybe even a conservative Democrat, especially on the issue of crime. How does Swazi stack up in your judgment? Well, I, I I know Tom, and the truth is, <clears throat> look, if Tom were to win this primary, I don't think Zeldin would have would have much of a chance because I think he's. He is, as Tom says, is a, is a is a common sense Democrat. Again, this election's playing itself out now, uh, and uh, I'm going to see how how that comes out. But I, I think that you know, Hochul at 37 is clearly vulnerable. What what do we really know at this point? We don't know. Uh, we don't know how good a candidate building in. We know that as governor. Hochul's getting a 37% rating. Anybody could read that. You know, if, if nationally the kind of attention, you know, every time Biden goes below 42 or whatever, I don't, I really can't recall a governor, I can't recall an unindicted New York state governor with a rating that low. I just mm. can't. Mm. And I, you know, I did New York politics all the way back to Ed Koch. Mm-hmm. God, I really liked Ed Koch. I knew him quite well. Um, Mark Penn, go national with me. Joe Biden, um, his polls may be slightly better than Kathy Hochul's, but not much. <laughs> what what kind of shape is Biden in? And has it, here, let me rephrase. Has Joe Biden's 
hit bottom yet in polling. Has he hit the bottom? Well, you know, I, I like to say we're a 40-40-20 country. <clears throat> we're about 40, I think, that just sticks Democratic now no matter what, and 40 that will go Republican no matter what, and 20 that's really the swing vote. So when he's at, you know, 42, like I don't believe some of these polls where he's down to 30, he's more or less down to the rock-bottom Democratic base. So it's hard for him to go uh, below that, and it doesn't matter electorally anyway. As I, as, I, as I tell you, if you're between 40 and 45, it's pretty difficult to get reelected. And if, if voters are going to the midterms, you know, and they have in their minds a president like that who's got a 57 percent negative, again, for all intensive purposes, you know, it, it's it's a tough midterm election for Democrats. And, you you know, and everybody sees the same polls now. So it's not like you're reading some secret tea leaves here, like the president's policies on the economy and inflation and crime and immigration you know, have all been rejected by the public by very wide margins. And they have, and I've written a number of articles saying, pivot, move, get back to the mm. center. Mm. And they, they steadfastly refuse to do that. I know. And you know what? I've, I've talked a lot about this on the TV show and here on the radio. You keep expecting them to reset and move to the middle you know, Clinton-esquely, if you will. And they don't they don't change their staff and they don't change their policies. It's a very odd story. Anyway, Mark Penn, favorite Democratic bolster, thank you very much for this morning. We appreciate it. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side, we're going to do some stock market work. we got to talk about the Bitcoin cryptocurrency business. They're all getting slaughtered. But then again, stocks aren't doing well either. Stick around. I'm Larry Kudlow. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great to be with you. You can join us during the week on Fox Business. Name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day. And here on the radio, you know, by the way, we can do internet live streaming, LarryKudlowShow.com, all over the country, throughout the globe, and the solar system. And now we have to turn to the stock market, which is not really much fun lately. Not much fun at all. And on top of that, we had this week a big blow up in the cryptocurrency world. A lot of people getting whacked on cryptocurrencies. In fact, Bitcoin, Bitcoin was down 17%. Uh, it's the one I really follow, but there's a bunch of them, and we're going to talk about that with our distinguished guest. This is going to be great fun. Jim Urio is director of TJM Institutional Services, and Kenny Polcari is a managing partner at Case Capital Advisors, and he's a chief market strategist at Slate Stone Wealth. Gentlemen, welcome back. I know that neither of you have any strong opinions about this, but I just thought I would t toss it out there. Um, uh, Urio did good on the TV. By the way, did you notice, Jim Urio, you weren't in the you know one and a half minute E block. You worked your way up to the B block oh, no. on the show yesterday. I'm very honored. It was awesome. I yeah, mean, it was so much fun. right. That was really something. Jim Urio on the B block. I think you had about seven or eight minutes. We had you right up there. I think you had more time than General Keene, for God's sakes. <laughs> anyway, and I'm going to, because I heard the Urio, so Ken Polcari, 
Give us some wisdom on this cryptocurrency crack up. But and I just want to add, okay, for perspective, there's a lot of crack ups going on in the stock market. It's not like just the cryptos. But what's your take on the cryptocurrency route? Well, so listen, you know, it, 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 I have a bunch of takes on it. Um, <laughs> yes. Partly because I am invested in it. I don't, I don't follow it so much where I analyze it. I have Bitcoin and Ethereum, which is where I'm, which is where I place my bet, continue to place my bets. But I'm also of the opinion that look, this is a new asset. It is risky. Everyone knows it's risky. I'm not certainly overweight in it, but I want to be in it because I want to participate in it. Um, am I surprised to see the meltdown? That I'm not really for two reasons. A, because I think some of it is brought on by the weakness in the market with people. You know, you sell the things you can when you get nervous and you try to raise money quickly. And I think that's part of what you're seeing in the crypto world is that people, you know, get nervous about where that's going. So they want to bail, bail, bail. So that's put downward pressure. But I also think that um, it's growing pains in the crypto world, right? I don't think it's going away. Uh, I think some of the stable coins like that uh, Luna coin, uh, which I don't completely understand how that's even constructed. I think things like that prove themselves to be failures, and those will die a natural death, like I think this one has. Um, but I don't think Bitcoin and Ethereum are going to necessarily die on the vine. I think it's just really, really bad growing things, and anyone who's in those markets needs to have a much longer-term view on it. Yeah, so just to follow up quickly, you you said it as a, as an aside, but I think it's very important that the cryptocurrencies are here to stay. I mean, I still get arguments about that. Uh, I was on radio with my dear friend, John Katsimatidis, and there just is a view that this is somehow going to go away. It's not going to go away, right? I mean, people just have to deal with that. And if you invest in it, if you buy them, right, if you buy the crypto, say you're buying Bitcoin and or Ethereum or um, Coinbase, which is an exchange, Coinbase makes money. They made a lot of money last year. What, four or five billion dollars for heaven's sakes and profits. So it's here to stay, right? Yeah, but it is. But you know, Larry, it was very interesting. You saw the news on Coinbase last week, right? Talked about should they ever file bankruptcy? People, account holders, people that have those in Coinbase are in fact not protected. That's a problem for anyone that has a Coinbase account. Look, I have a Coinbase account. That's where I have my crypto. I now thought twice about where should I be storing my crypto if, in fact, I have zero confidence that I'm going to be protected should something happen to that to that to that company. Right. That that's something that people should think about. But I guess what I'm really concerned is how what the SEC thinks about that comment. Mm-hmm. Don't they, uh, Jim Urio? Um, oh, you the SEC. Okay, good. Yeah, I'm ready. He wants the A block now. That's what the lobbying is. But let, here, here's the thing. Um, what, uh, what Kenny just said about Coinbase, it is regulated by the SEC. Now, what, how damaging was their announcement? Were they wrong? Do, are they well enough capitalized? Do they have enough reserves or what? But it's all about whether or not people's interests are going to stay in it. And, and, you know, so we had talked about this about a year ago, where in my mind, I think there was hundreds of thousands of people who had dropped out of the workforce and were the crypto bro, crypto traders. And that's where Coinbase makes money. So the whole thing I think we're talking about here 
is easy money policies ending, and we're pulling back the wallpaper to see where the problems are in cryptocurrencies. So the question is going to become, are people going to still be interested in cryptocurrencies and still be actively trading cryptocurrencies going forward? I think the answer to that is yes. There's something that you guys talked about, which I found, what thought was interesting, is that are they here to stay? Yes or to stay? I thought of back in the early days, the automobile, how like there was, and I might be getting some of these numbers wrong, there was 500 different automobile manufacturers in this mm-hmm. country alone. At that time, or, Ken, you remember? was when you were a kid, right? Anyway, as time wore yeah. on, um, not, you know, it was it down to the <laughs> right, exactly. That was a joke, Kenny. I don't know what he laughed. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I think the same thing we're seeing here, and I think what we're seeing now in the weakness with the Tether Luna stablecoin thing is finding a gap in the system where there was weakness, probing it. Now, one of the reasons that happened is because Bitcoin is being used as collateral for that stablecoin, and Bitcoin's lost fifty percent of its value since November, and um, because they were failing or not, or I'm not sure failing is the right word, they may have to sell their collateral. So that exacerbated the fall in Bitcoin. So, but I think what the long story short is, is I think that Bitcoin and Ethereum are here to stay. They already have the first 10 to 11 years under their belt um, as far as winning over confidence. And Coinbase stays fine as long as people continue to uh, need places to store and trade that. So I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I like Coinbase. That's where I have my account as well. Right. I mean, I, I like Coinbase. I, what was concerning to me was that statement they made about, look, you're not protected if we file bankruptcy. I think that was what was concerning to me. Yeah, but yeah, Kenny, there's... take any company. Yeah. Look, you own a stock in a company. Yeah. And the company can go down and you will lose correct. all your money. All right. Yeah, is that correct. different from Coinbase? Well, the only reason I think it's different from Coinbase is for me, in my mind, Coinbase is like the bank. Right. So I have money in the bank. I'm not talking about owning Coinbase as a stock. I'm talking about having my Coinbase account at Coinbase. So my Ethereum and Bitcoin is held at Coinbase. Right. So if I understood it correctly, what they said is, should they file bankruptcy, potentially lose my money in my own account at Coinbase? Unlike if I have my money at Chase Manhattan and they go out of business, I'm protected somewhat by FDIC insurance. Yeah. Well, okay. I was going to ask you. Unless I completely misunderstood that, although I don't think I misunderstood it. But Kenny, the young, the young crypto bros, they take their their crypto out and keep it in a in a uh, cold wallet. Well, correct. So we don't that's correct because we, we don't because we don't know how to do that. So there is a little bit of a difference. That's exactly the point. I don't know how to do it. <laughs> well, here is Coinbase. Is Coinbase too big to fail? They have ninety million people. Some odd. So. You know, these big banks are too big to fail. We're going to bail them out. We've learned that lesson painfully, probably getting worse. Is it going to now spill over into the unregulated? Coinbase is regulated by the SEC, but the crypto world by and large is unregulated. Now, the left wing woke progressives will try to squeeze it out and have the government take them over. But I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon because the cavalry is coming. But really, is Coinbase too big to fail? 90 million people are in it. 90 yeah. million. That's a big number. It's <laughs> a very big yeah, number, 90 million. Number. 90 million people are in it. What's the balance that they actually – like, well, what does that represent in terms of Bitcoin value, right, or Ethereum value or other values? I don't know what that is. I don't think right. the government would care one lick if Coinbase failed, if the whole crypto <laughs> world went away. Yeah, I, I don't think, think they're either. terrified of it because it happens outside – 
purview. And I think they're in back rooms right now calculating how they could make it go away. There's even some talk that there might have been some nefarious activity that caused that stable coin to go down. Again, I'm not pointing at fingers, but come on, the government doesn't want um, this a vibrant, non off off the Fed's balance sheet, off the banking system's rate, rate of exchange, do they? No, you're so right. Listen, I went through this. We had these conversations during the Trump administration. The Federal Reserve and the Treasury want the whole crypto world to go away. They just want it to go away. Now, they, they haven't done anything about that. I mean, we had discussions inside Trump administration. I'm not going to tell you who was on which side, but I'm going to tell you I don't want crypto to go away. I do think it's here to stay. But again, the Agreed. Fed and the Treasury don't like it one bit. And they want to, you know, the Fed wants to have a digital dollar because they can control that and regulate that. It just be part of their money supply. And you know how brilliantly they've done on that money supply stuff. Let me take a quick break. Okay. Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services, Chicago's leading restaurateur, and Ken Polcari, managing partner at Case Capital and chief market strategist at Slatestone Wealth. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back. And now we're going to tackle the stock market. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking to Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services, and Ken Polcari, managing director at Case Capital Advisors. All right, gentlemen, let's look at the stock market. We talked about the crypto market. Um, another bad week. Everything was down. The NASDAQ is down 24.5% year to date. I just want to read these sort of key areas. Uh, in the S&P 500, consumer discretionary down 26%, Infotech down 22%, telecoms down 25%, the phone companies. I don't know what that's about. But then you go deeper. Uh, the SOX index for semiconductors is down 25%. The Home Builders index is down 32%. And the S&P Retailers index is down 27%. Um Jim Urio, I'm just saying there's a lot of carnage inside the market. Mm -hmm. and, and what you're saying, too, about naming all those sectors that don't always move together, I think it's a kind of the mirror image of how they were all moving up with easy money and the high correlations that have happened over the last 10 years, and now we're seeing it sucked out of the market. Again, this is the same thing about pulling back the wallpaper and having everything has to readjust higher rates. You know, I've been saying 20% in the broad market, the S&P, and 35%. Uh, needed to happen. But again, I don't even think it's the worst thing in the world. Corrections are supposed to happen, and this is part of it. Um, I that one, one of the reasons that three and a half million baby boomers left the workforce ahead of schedule was really rosy and enthusiastic predictions of where the Fed put was going to be in stock market returns going forward. We're not supposed to be making decisions on this notion that stocks always go up. So this is a reality check, and it's fine. Um, I do think the Fed is not going to tighten as much as they they think they're gonna i think they're gonna go twice more 50 and then reevaluate the five-year break-evens have gone from 3.6 to 2.89 so there's less worry about this inflation being persistent as heck going forward and i think the question is going to be the fed tightening meeting and meeting the recession which i think is going to be a relatively mild recession i don't think there's huge excesses built up like we saw in the real estate uh, market back in 07 uh, but i think i think the most of the stock market carnage is good. I think certain things are going to do good. Commodities, corn is still basically at you know, multi-year highs. Crude is high. The dollar is at almost a 20-year high. So certain things are doing fine. But uh, I think the carnage will continue a little while longer, but not much. 
Ken Pelkari, what do you make of it? So, listen, I think to Jimmy's point, that's correct. A lot of these sectors that you named, the ones that are down the most, are certainly the ones that led on the way up and will readjust in this rising rate environment. I don't know why that why anybody should necessarily be concerned. Again, it's a math equation, right? When the inputs change, the output has to change, and the inputs are changing because we're changing the policy, we're changing what the expectation of rates is, what does that then mean for stock market valuations, and what you're seeing is that correction is happening. And it's not, the, it's not you know, doomsday, light your hair on fire, run out, the, run, you know, run out the door. It's not that at all. But people should recognize that those sectors that you name, like consumer discretionary, should absolutely be having doing what it's doing because – they are, as it says, discretionary items. They're not things that people need to live every day. And so, therefore, you would imagine that those things would, would, would trade lower. Consumers, on the other hand, are on the year. They're down, they're not up, they're flat, which is actually a win, considering the market's down, you know, the S&P's down nearly 17% or 15%. So, to Jimmy's yeah, point, but- that correction happened. I, all right. I'll get, let me give you some, another scenario. So... There's, I think, too much talk that inflation is, quote unquote, coming down or will come down or peaked. It's not at all clear to me that that's true. I mean, I think inflation is going to be an intractable problem. And I think you're going to run six to 10 percent inflation. So therefore, regarding stocks and and cryptocurrencies, for that matter, um, the Fed will be more aggressive. They will be forced into it. They don't want to be, but in the second half of the year, they will see just how bad the inflation story is. The whole country has turned against it. It's wreaking havoc for the Democrats in the midterms. The Fed, you know, Jay Powell is a very political guy. So they're going to have to drain reserves, not just let bonds run off, but actually pull money out of the economy and take the Fed funds rate up much more than people think. Not, you know, 250s and, uh, 250 basis points and they're out. I'm talking about full percentage point increases in the second half of the year. So by the end of the year, the Fed funds rate could be 5%, that kind of thing. What would that do to the market? What would that do? Jim Urio, I'm going to start. Right. This is my question. You, Jim Urio, you first. I think it'd be terrible with the markets. I, I think that yep. then we're talking about, like I sold the 3,000 puts the other day, which, which is down 37%. And to me, that was the fact that they were as, um, as expensive as they were, in my mind, was thinking, no, there are certain people who are, po- who are pricing in what you're talking about. And I mm. personally think that that's, that's too much. That's the far end of it. I don't think that's going to happen. But the political question you said about political notion of Jay Powell, just to take soft landing off the table like days after his final appointment, to um, to turn hawkish days after his initial appointment a couple months back. Anyone who makes the argument that this that he didn't keep things running too hot for too long because of some political pressures, I think that argument is a losing argument. But I, I don't I think what you're saying I don't will happen. I don't agree with that, but I, if it does, I think we could be seeing around thirty five percent in the broad market. Kenny? Yeah, I, listen, I'm Larry, I'm in your camp. Jimmy, I, I agree I with Larry that I think inflation is going to remain strong, and that is going to be a problem, and the Fed's going to realize that not only they're behind the eight ball, they're well behind the eight ball, and so uh, I don't agree that they're going to slow down, that they're going to, you know, stop raising rates. What, I think if, what if this, 
Kenny, what if this scenario happens? What if we're starting to go into a bit of recession, so prices are coming down on their own, at the same time supply chains begin to adjust to whatever new world it is, and whatever's going on in China um, starts yep. to end, which I don't even understand that one bit. But in that scenario, do you think inflation slows down considerably? Well, in that scenario, it probably slows down. I'm not sure it slows down considerably, but I think it might slow down a little bit. I'm still in the. I'm still under the uh, under the uh, uh, impression that that's not going to happen, and inflation is going to remain elevated at these higher levels. It may not spike higher, but it may just stay at 10 percent and just stay. That's there. right. Um, that's right. Know, which is Fellas, what, which is what the problem is going to be. It's not about supply chain. The problem with the supply chains argument is that the government spending and the Fed's money printing has created so much demand with nominal GDP rising at 10 to 12% as a proxy for demand. I don't care with or without supply chain. No supply chains. We can't produce goods and services enough to satisfy this inflated demand. That's the problem. The Fed hasn't even started to withdraw money yet from the economy. Anyway, beware. Before I can even respond, right off, man. Jim Urio (laughs) and Ken Polcari. Thank you, gentlemen. More to be revealed. We're going money politics on the other side of the break with Liz Peek and Steve Moore and the baby formula scandal. How about that one? I'm Kudlow. Please stick around, folks. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to do some money politics with two stars from the Fox Business Show, Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day during the week. We have Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore, Freedom Works, and Committee to Unleash Prosperity. His latest book is Gubzilla. Uh, many welcomes to both of you, kids. I, I want to start with this uh, baby formula story, which I I said, and I began this whole show with it. I don't, I'm not sure I understand all of it. Uh, I, <laughs> Abbott Abbott says that they're not wrong. There's no problem. The FDA and the CDC now are involved. That means heavy regulations, scientific meetings. Oh my gosh. The Wall Street Journal editorialized this morning that it's, it's, the problem is about free trade. I don't really buy that. But help me out here. Let me start with Liz Peake because this is a national scandal. And, Liz, I don't see a solution here. In other words, I don't see the shelves being restocked anytime soon. Yeah, it, yes. Uh, I think the most troublesome thing is that the companies have said, yes, they're going to start up, you know, they'll reopen their plants, and with a matter of weeks – They'll get formula back on the shelves. That does not help a mother that has a baby that needs infant formula. So I I do think it's sort of a scramble mess of uh, unduly burdensome uh, regulations, a very slow-to-respond White House. Apparently, Elise Stefanik did warn the White House back in February that there was trouble brewing, and they did nothing to investigate the causes of it. Uh, it, But, you know, the FDA numerous times – has been found wanting in terms of its regulatory efficiency and, and oversight capabilities. And I think it's going to turn out to be another place. FDA was just, just bungled what was happening. They, the plant shut down. Uh, apparently, they did a pretty rigorous investigation. There was no uh, contagion found in any of the product, and yet that plant is still not up and running. And I think there should have been some 
mental leap between not enough formula being produced and not enough formula being delivered to stores, nobody seems to have made that connection. And Steve, you, you trace this back. This thing surfaced last October, and the FDA was warned about this. There was a whistleblower, and they did nothing for several months. And now, to Liz's point, I think, Anybody that's uh, look, I dealt with the FDA. I sat on the uh, uh, coronavirus task force. Uh, unless a president really comes in and hammers them, they will take a long time, a long time to make any kind of final decision, Steve Moore. And that is the most troublesome aspect of this. Well, it is. And it makes me think of Operation Warp Speed because really what Warp Speed was, and you were there, Larry, was a way a lot of those FDA hurdles to get a new vaccine mm-hmm. on the market that you guys got done, what, eight to 10 months? It would have taken three years in the normal process. And so, uh, look, I think that the two villain agencies over the last couple of years through COVID have been the FDA and the CDC. And they, they've mm-hmm. never really been held accountable for all of the mistakes that they've made. And we give these agencies billions and billions and billions of dollars, as you know. There's just one other point. You know, we have all these, quote, supply chain shocks to the system, right? I don't remember supply chain shocks under Donald Trump. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, why is it all of a sudden, you know, we can't get baby food on the shelves? Why is it that my wife and I went out to, um, you know, to uh, shop around for a new car last weekend, Larry? We went to four dealerships in the in the area that we live in. And they all said, sure, we can get your car in six months. <laughs> and and right. so what's happening is, you know, you go to these, you, you know, and it's the same thing. My friend said he wanted to get a motorcycle. Same thing. They're just not in stock. And I've never, you know, I've been alive 62 years in this country. I've never seen that before. <laughs> Something's mm-hmm. going terribly wrong here, folks. And the finger points, oh, well, it's Trump. It's the meat packers. It's the oil companies. It's the pharmaceuticals. Maybe Washington is the problem here. Well, no doubt. Look, at I just... The, the Operation Warp Speed with the vac- vaccinations is an interesting uh-huh. uh, parallel here because Trump and Pence, but Trump hammered CDC right. and the FDA. Right. I mean, called them in to the Oval, right, right? and gave right. them hell, okay? And right. at the same time, he hammered the pharmaceutical companies, okay? Right. I mean, hammered and encouraged. So... You got something done in six months that would have taken three years, five years, God knows how many years. What I'm worried about here, because I really am worried about the children, as I'm sure everybody is, I'm worried that Biden doesn't act like that, okay? Biden's blaming, Biden's blaming Abbott, what is there, four companies that make baby formulas. He's blaming them for price gouging. It's like the energy story. It's the same thing, Liz. He's blaming them. I mean, that's a... That's a part of this story. So now they're price gouging, okay? And they're going to haul what? They're going to haul them off. Don't forget about don't forget about the meat packers and the yes and the poultry people. (laughs) Well, if 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 Biden were capable of mounting a warp speed uh, like approach to solving a problem, we would have seen it in gasoline in confronting gasoline prices because that is the number one thing that is really hurting Americans. That's making headlines every day. Hasn't gotten. Better. We don't have that kind of energy in the White House. We don't have that kind of 
uh, feeling of uh, partnership with the private sector. There is nothing to indicate that Joe Biden could mount such an effort uh, or that he has any inclination to doing so. Obviously, that's what's needed here. Instead, we have Democrats on the House Oversight Committee having hearings, and that is really going to help. <laughs> I mean, he's Biden. So there's no, there's no baby food on the shelves, and he's hauling them off to the Federal Trade Commission for antitrust violations. I mean, come on. this You can't make this stuff up. It's absolutely extraordinary. But, Steve, this can go on weeks and weeks of this. And then, of course, you know, the sidebar to this story, and I don't know enough about this, but, you know, apparently these um, packages of baby formulas have gone to these detention centers by the border where they're having illegal immigrants and their kids. And Americans, you know, whatever happened to America first? I mean, this is another sidebar to the story that is infuriating people. Well, I have to confess I'm not a, a, an expert on uh, baby infant formula, but I do think that uh, what we're seeing right now is, 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 as Liz just said, a kind of pattern. Every industry where prices rise is, is price gouging. And I was quite disturbed by that speech that, that Biden gave the other day. It really, it was mm-hmm. quite disturbing. There was no sense of, okay, let's meet in the middle. Let's let's figure out a way to get through this. Let's maybe dump our left-wing progressive ideology for a few minutes and and get this stuff solved. It was basically what that speech was, other than a lot of finger-pointing and blaming everybody but himself, it was a case. He made the case for Build Back Better. And I loved uh, the uh, senator of Louisiana said, you know, it's not built, it's not back, and it's not better. (laughs) (laughs) Senator Kennedy. John Kennedy, yeah. That was a great And so, uh, you know, and then the other line I always use is, you know, instead of build back better, just leave it the way you found it. (laughs) Yeah, isn't that the truth? (laughs) Well, you know, that's it. But that's an important point. Um, You know, Liz, Joe Biden will not shoulder any blame or own any problem. And I thought the inflation speech was very, very disappointing because it showed no change, okay? We are transformational progressives. We are big government socialists, and we're going to continue to spend, and we're going to continue to try to tax rich, successful people, and we're going to just blame Vladimir Putin for the inflation problem. I mean, it was a pretty pathetic speech. Oh, it's horrible. It was a campaign message. But here, Larry, you're always talking about the cavalry is coming. Jeff Bezos today... I don't know if you guys saw this, tweeted, the newly created disinformation board should review this tweet, or maybe they need to form a new non-sequitur board instead. Raising corporate taxes is fine to discuss. Taming inflation is critical. Mushing them together is just misdirection. And he's talking about a tweet from Joe Biden saying, you want to bring inflation down? Let's make the wealthiest corporations pay their fair share. Mm. I mention this only because it has been the enabling presence and backing of the liberal media and big American corporations that has let this idiocy go forward from the White House. So here's Mm -hmm. at least Jeff Bezos, of all people, standing up and saying, oh, wait a minute, no, making America corporate, raising taxes on America's corporations is actually not going to solve our inflation problem. So maybe, maybe people are going to begin to sort of break this liberal wall of solidarity and then and we'll have a little bit of uh, at least debate over issues that have been sort of rolled across the country as sort of de facto 
truth, not in not disinformation. But you know, I found that rather encouraging. And by the way, Steve, Jeff Bezos is no Jeff Bezos is no conservative. You know, he's a, he's a I know. Democrat. And for him to say that, really exactly. Thank you. Touch, uh, you know, the the president is, uh, and and I, look, I don't think the public is buying any of this, Larry. You know, we've been mm-hmm. looking at a lot of the opinion polls. People don't. People just want solutions, and and they're turned off by the finger pointing. And they realize, look, one and a half percent inflation under Trump, and a half percent inflation under Biden. Is that a coincidence? Uh, I don't think so. Well, he basically said, and we got to take a break, but he basically said. Uh, spending is not the problem. We're going to spend more. We're going to tax rich uh, people and rich co- uh, corporations, and we're going to continue to regulate energy. That was his message, and that's going to solve inflation. Well, wait a minute. But that's what we've been doing for the last 18 months, and then we have an 8% inflation rate. But it's no, it's not really true. It's all Vladimir Putin's fault. All right, I got to take a break. Uh, you know, this is George Orwell. George Orwell, God, it's just fabulous stuff. We got Liz Peake and Steve Moore. On the other side of the break, I want to talk about Ultra MAGA. Ultra MAGA. I want to be Ultra MAGA. Anyway, we'll be right back. I'm Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Folks, two stars from the Fox Business Show Kudlow, two stars, Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, Steve Moore, Freedom Works, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and the book GovZilla. All right, kids, Joe Biden unleashes his latest attack on Republicans, calling them ultra MAGA, ultra MAGA. Now, I didn't really know this, um, but up on Fox uh, News site, according to The Washington Post, the ultra MAGA messaging came from a six-month research project from the liberal group Center for American Progress Action Fund and headed by top Biden aide Anita Dunn. And they're saying in battleground areas, more than twice as many voters said they would be less likely to vote for someone who calls a MAGA Republican than would be more likely. So, Steve Moore, is this ultra MAGA attack going to work? Um, I doubt it, but uh, it is true that, you know, um, I always say people loved Trump's policies. They often didn't love him. And so trying to link uh they tried this by the way in the virginia governor's race as you know i was involved in that um and uh and they tried to you know say youngkin was trump and so on and and they're going to try to do that throughout these campaigns coming up um in november but ultimately they still have a record to run on and and it's just it's just a truism that the longer biden is in office the better trump's presidency looks you know in Mm. comparison so I, I, I think, you know, I, they're, look, they're desperate right now, Larry. They don't have a message. <laughs> they don't have an economy. and they don't, Everything they've touched is in collapse. The, the border crime is up. The cities are falling apart. You know, oil prices are as high as ever, Afghanistan. And, and so they need to figure out some way to change the subject, and this is that attempt. Yeah, Liz Peake, so yesterday or the day before, expanding on Ultra MAGA, um, Biden's use the phrase MAGA king, MAGA king, which I guess refers to. But I, Trump. you know, I I regard that as a compliment. Liz Peaker, might you be the MAGA queen? Is that what this is going? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Look, I, I think 
think Steve is totally right. Democrats have nothing. The way they won in 2020 was basically saying that Biden was not Trump. That's what they had. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, any amount of polling shows that Americans really aren't into the whole progressive dogma, progressive agenda that Biden was spouting. After all, that's why they didn't run Bernie Sanders, who otherwise probably would have walked away with a nomination. But Democrats knew that his stuff was too extreme, so they didn't let him become the candidate. Instead, they had Joe Biden, and Joe Biden ran as non-Trump. I I think that begins to wane. Uh, You know, when when people tweet back at me something, well, that's bad, that's happening, but, oh, my gosh, it was worse under Trump, I kind of say, you know, you got to let go of this. I mean, he's no longer president. Uh, Yeah, he's sort of out there and, and sort of creating waves with various primary nominations and stuff. But Donald Trump's not president. As, as Steve said, it's really going to be uh, rising and falling on the Biden record. And right now, the Biden record is abysmal. So uh, I think they have other issues that are – look, they're going to be in, in swing states. There are many uh, voters who don't want to have a candidate probably too closely tied to Donald Trump. I think that's a fair statement. But as yep. we saw with Youngkin, there's a way to manage that. You always say, I, I agree with the policies. Perhaps you don't have them come – uh, campaign with you, you keep your distance. And my guess is that's the game plan for a lot of people, including people like Dr. Oz. My guess is he so doesn't what, want can I just interject one. Can I just interject yeah. one quick thing? You know, when your friends and my friends say this too, well, at least it's, you know, it's better than under Trump. But like, what? What? It's better than under Trump. I mean, the economy yeah. isn't better. Inflation isn't better. Our security isn't better. The gas prices aren't better. So what's better than when the we, tweets? When we have the Trump? tweets are better, Steve. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> I guess that's it. Yeah, but Steve, you're pretty MAGA, Steve Moore. You're pretty MAGA. I mean, I no, think I you're going to qualify as ultra MAGA. <laughs> and I think that's a good thing. It's an honor roll thing, it's a badge of honor. Well, Larry, if make them, if MAGA means cutting taxes, reducing regulation, right, right, I'm for it. <laughs> and and that's what the Republicans. That should be their response. That's all. Yeah. Define MAGA in the terms you just did. You know, s- stop spending, cut taxes, deregulate, energy independence, tougher on the border, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right. In other words, I, I think this is going to backfire. On Biden, that's what, and and Trump, by the way, is not on the ballot this November. Exactly. That's just a exactly. technical point that I want to inject in this. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> not, not not about. All right, I got one more for you in the last couple of minutes here. I'm looking at the New York Post this morning. Um, if I pronounce this right, Karen Jean Pierre, she's the new press secretary, replacing Madam Saki. Um, and the story runs, Karen Jean-Pierre has frequent history of accusing things of being racist. And apparently between 2015 and 2020, she had a staggering 57 instances where she accused people, pol- policies, ideas, or words as being racist. Now, she's going to be the new press secretary. This is a problem. Of all the people out there in the world, they've got to put this gal in you know it's a very visible point she's the spokesperson etc etc and she's coming in with this track record i mean she should go before the misinformation board she shouldn't be the press secretary i mean steve moore what do you make of this why do they have to do this well, let's just say she's no Sarah Huckabee Sanders, right? Right. Uh, who is, That's by the way, right. a, a, a emerging star of the 
Republican Party right now that she's going to win her governorship by 80 percent or something in Arkansas. Um, I know her a little bit because uh, remember I did my penance. I had to spend a year and a half with uh, with CNN, and that's where uh, Jeff Pizaki and all these all these Biden people were hanging out there until came back into power. And uh, it's not just um, that she uses the racist term all the time, which she did all the time on on CNN, but also you know I think much more problematic is she spent many 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 months talking about the 2016 election stolen. Mm. Mm. I we weren't supposed to do that. Isn't that a, you know, a, a, how dare anyone question the validity of our elections? I thought that was the left mantra. So if it walks like a racist, I'm just quoting. This is, uh, this is what she said on MSNBC. Uh, if it walks like a racist, talks like a racist, acts like a racist, it is a racist. And we have a racist president in the White House who really pushes his racism like a peacock. She told a smirking panel on the MSNBC show AM Joy in 2018. Okay, so, but the thing is, Liz, it just occurs to me, um, this is an inflammatory situation, right? Jen Psaki, you know, she defended her boss as best she could, and that's what a press secretary does, okay? But I don't think that Saki by herself was inflammatory, all right? You may disagree with her opinions because she's uh, obviously supporting her boss. Whereas this gal, and I don't know her, Steve knows her, I guess, she's coming in with an inflammatory presentation, an inflammatory record. And I don't see how she can be a good press secretary under those circumstances. Yes, you're supposed to be the neutral arbiter and and sort of transporter of information from the White House mm-hmm. to the press corps. It's going to be very interesting to see what the press corps reaction to that is. But, Larry, look, I mean, we're dancing around this issue. The reason she's there is she's black and she's, I don't know, yes. not, she's not trans. She's something else. I forget what. Maybe she's a lesbian. I really don't know. But, I mean, every <laughs> appointment from this White House has been celebrated for being the first of this, the first of that, checking the boxes. And in some cases, it appears like they haven't really done their due diligence, like this person, Jankwitz, on right. the disinformation thing. It looks like they're sort of, you know, blowback about her, but they didn't even know what her past was. So did they were they aware this woman has all this racist content in her background? Look. Unfortunately, right now, we are at the pinnacle of race being at the center of almost every conversation. I think Americans Uh are tired of it. I don't think they approve of it. We've seen that with the blowback to CRT. And it's making racism a bigger problem than it was, and that's indefensible. Liz Peake and Steve Moore, thank you, kids. Fabulous stuff. Folks, you'll see them both on the Kudlow Show on Fox Business. And I'm Larry Kudlow. And I'll be back next weekend.